0: Uh, this is Matthew chapter 5. I believe it's on the screen there in a minute. Matthew five thirty-eight through 45. This is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. Uh, we, um, we took a break last week. We had our 10-year anniversary. We celebrated last week, which was awesome. Um, we're still here. Still thriving, still moving, still sustaining, kind of. And um, we, <laughs> we, are, uh, we, we had a great time. It was a great time sharing stories, um, pressing into um, some, some themes of what God's saying to us. Um, and then I'm, we're jumping back into our series that we're in called Shift, um, which we're taking um, some of these uh, five you know, markers or, or statements. They were put out by an organization called the Jesus Collective, which is mostly in Canada. Um, Canadians always got something good to say right uh, and so um, we, we felt like these were good um, our, our elders were kind of feeling like this season of like pressing into like what is the new line of the church what is the what is the way of doing church that we do now that we'll never go back to and do the old way and so we pressed, and these things kind of hit on a lot of those for us and, and as our congregation as well the first week we talked about a bigger gospel um, that that being saved is not just an individualistic experience, it's being saved to a community. You're not just saved from something, you're saved to something. Uh, and then we talked about a different way of reading scripture, uh, that we, could, we can have our eyes open to see that the Bible is pretty complex and ancient and abstract and diverse, and yet we approach it with a new way of, of looking at it, that the Bible is reading us, not just us having authority over it. And um, today we're talking about a new relationship with power. Uh, that evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. So we're talking about themes of peacemaking and nonviolence that are very important to our church, Uh, themes of how do we engage with evil. Evil, injustice, I mean it's a constant theme living in Chicago. Um, I don't know how it started or where it came from or why our city, but I do think of several individual stories that all just kind of add up in my head, right? Like You've got uh, Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz in Humble Park, grew up in Humble Park, wrote a story about a young, young child, young woman, who's leaving the countryside to go to The Wizard of Oz, to go down the yellow brick road, the, the city in which she encounters evil in order to chase her dreams. And something about, I'm sure, Frank Baum growing up in Chicago that really resonated with that struggle that we all face, that we come here from the Midwest small town or wherever you came from to, to pursue your dreams and yet encounter evil encounter the evil of systemic injustice and justices that were created from all over. I don't, I don't know if it came from Ray Kroc and taking and stealing people's ideas in order to make millions of dollars for McDonald's started in Chicago, or if it came from Hugh Hefner, who grew up in Chicago, who learned to objectify women and make sure that sexual impulses could be at your nightstand and be that accessible, or if it came from Al Capone and the violence that transpired in Chicago of the early gangs... So many stories, right, that all kind of line up to this storyline of Chicago being one in which we struggle with injustice and corruption. Um, every city kind of has a storyline. You know, uh, New York is ambition. D.C. is power. L.A. is image. What is Chicago's? What do you think? Class participation. It's a hard one, Right. Segreg- segregation? Yeah, there's a, there's a segregation, there's an injustice there. Um, it's a hard one. Any other thoughts? I don't have the authority here, but I have a thought. Hard working? Hard working? City with big shoulders? Industrial? Yeah. It's a hard one. I, I think, I sometimes think there's that, and I think there's, we are hard working, and then there's the like burnout side of that of comfort. I kind of wonder if comfort is our storyline. Um, the sense of needing to be, you know, we endure the winters, we go through all that, and it's just like, I just want my comfort. I want my, um, I want to do what's comfortable after I've done all this hard work and um, endured. But regardless, I think that all of, in the end of the day, we have to pay attention to the context of our city and that we are surrounded by a city that is built on a history of corruption Um, and not to believe that we are not susceptible to that as well, that we are susceptible to use power in a way that's coercive, Um, that we use our power that we have to power over rather than power to. Um, In our relation, and this is not just societal, this is in our relationships. Are you using your power, a power to serve, right, or is it a power over? And um, today we're talking about this idea of peacemaking. And what I want you to hear loud and clear in the Sermon on the Mount is that the way you show up as a Christian in the world matters a lot. The way you show up, the way we show up to the world as believers matters a big deal. God cares a great deal in how we show up as Christians in our city. It's not enough to have vertical fortitude with God, to, to be uh, praising his name, studying the Bible, pray, you know, worshiping, and not to have a horizontal fortitude with our neighbor and not to have a horizontal fortitude with our city. And my fear and concern is that we treat our vertical relationship with high, high priority and we treat our horizontal relationships as kind of extracurricular. Like, that's like pottery class, right? Um, that's like an option, If we get around to it, we'll work on our character and how we show up with one another. But as long as I'm kind to God, it's good enough, and we know that that's not true. So Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers, a minute into my message, we're already in conflict because peacemaking implies conflict. That's the first thing I want to do, just kind of give you a framework of peacemaking um, today. And the first thing is peacemakers implies conflict conflict. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are children of God. And so, um, I don't know if you've ever had that moment. You come to church, you feel like you've encountered God, you feel a little bit more holistic and integrated with God. You leave, in 30 seconds you're into an argument with your spouse, your kids are falling apart, they're yelling at you, you're, you're getting an attitude with them you're frustrated with them right like you have a conflict with somebody in church or or somebody outside of church already fighting with your spouse yelling at your kids 30 seconds out you're already in conflict and you know there's all kinds of different conflict types there's the the, the turtle avoider right just kind of go into my shell like don't want to do that and then there's like the shark right who's like sharks can't swim backwards by the way it's just like one mode attack mode um and so uh that i don't know which one you are um for me, uh, I think the shark comes out rather quickly, especially when you're engaging my kids. I remember, you know, we have kids, and, like, I don't remember the first time, if you had kids, do you remember the first time your kid was, like, pushed down at a playground by another kid? You're like, oh, no, uh-uh. Like, who is this kid? I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, Holy Spirit's restraining me from, like, choking this kid right now. Like, don't, don't push my kid down. Um, there's, the, there's all these different conflict types, right? But that's a whole other sermon. The idea of peacemaking is there's conflict and, and it's, he, he, that's what we're going to get into. So in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, let me give you a little context. The major debate between Jews was, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That's the debate. Jesus comes in on the scene and begins to talk about who is blessed. And in that time, he would have flipped the system upside down. He would tell stories about the Good Samaritan, right? In which the Jews were wondering, who is my neighbor? and he portrays the, neighbor, the one who acts neighborly as the biggest enemy of the Jews, which were Samaritans. Um, and that neighbor showed them the way of grace. It taught them the way of grace. The high watermark of Christian spirituality is the ability to see. And so the context of this is people were occupied by military Roman Occupation, so Roman occupied the the Jewish territory. So they were under Roman rule, under Roman military occupation. The poor people were taxed over 80%. Jews were planning a revolt against the Roman Empire. And this is the context in which Jesus speaks. The Beatitudes: Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Now, when you see that blessing, it's pretty powerful in that context. But what Jesus is doing is even more powerful, is he subverting a Jewish blessing found in the Sirach. In the Sirach, this was the famous Jewish blessing in Sirach twenty-five seven through eleven, and it's a, a writing that would have been circulated among all the rabbis of the time. And this was the blessing of the Jews at the time. I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, a tenth my tongue's proclaim. A man who can rejoice in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife, and the one who does not plow with ox and donkey together. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue, and the one who has not served an inferior. So you're blessed if you have not had to serve someone lesser than you. Happy is the one who finds a friend, and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. So you can hear the subtle attitudes of groupings of one against the other, man against woman. Patriarchy, you hear these groupings of of, of less and the haves and the have-nots, the, the, the spiritual and the non-spiritual. You kind of hear this othering already in this blessing, right? Jesus flips this, completely flips the script. So today, it would have sounded something like this. Blessed are the down and out. Blessed are the unemployed, the underinsured. Blessed are those who are gentrified. Blessed are those who are on the wrong side of globalization. Blessed are those without a college degree. If you are here and you have had an abortion, God is on your side, and he is happy with you and will wipe away every tear. You are blessed. Do you see the radical nature of what this would have communicated to the crowd, right? Those who are simply simpletons, the spiritually simple, who have little to offer the kingdom of God, the disabled, blessed is the sad, the depressed, those who grieve the death of a loved one, the failing of a marriage, those who have a painful family dysfunctional history because one day God will wipe away every tear from your eye. Blessed is the quiet, the shy, the depressed, those who can't get it together. Blessed are the addicts, the mentally unstable, the overweight, those who come from an abusive home. You are blessed because you are close to the kingdom of God, and one day God will fill your life. The little ones who get stepped on, those who don't fight violence with violence, blessed are those who want nothing to do with war and are willing to, bring to bear a new world to bear. So this is the radical message of Jesus. This is kind of like what he's doing. He's taking those who are on the underside of power and saying, you are happy, you are blessed, you are... Um, Envied, we wish we had not. Not that we wish we had your condition, but we wish we had the humble dependency and the ability to be close to the heart of God as you. And so there's this sense that 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 Jesus is flipping the script. And I, I and and what this dichotomy here that the mindset of the day was this very much in and out groups. That's the whole New Testament, people. The whole New Testament was written because the. Gentiles are being grafted into the faith, and you have to write all these letters to help churches get it. And the great enemy of our faith is not atheism, I don't think. I don't think the enemy of the faith is like disbelief. The enemy of our faith is believers who have such certitude in their belief that they make anyone who has a different view feel less than an inferior. That That is the greatest enemy to Christianity right now is someone with so much certitude that if you believe different from me, my belief is something that I need to protect at all costs and create algorithms around to spread this propaganda and to begin to make sure that everyone believes this and take advantage of 60 year old 70-year-olds that are retired and have nothing else to do to sit on Facebook, right? It's like, that's the enemy of the faith right now. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little sarcastic and, and, and sassy here, but... Um, Jesus comes with this new framework, and our worldview is if anyone's different from you, they're fragile, and you only see them as wrong. There's people on the left and right, and that always leads to violence. Not, maybe not physical violence, but a violence of objectifying the human in front of you. And I want to give you this framework here that um, what peacemaking requires is, is shalom is this Hebrew word shalom. I just want to go over briefly. Um, I, I, most of you probably know this, but just real quick. In Genesis 1, God created everything good, and then sin entered the world, and it touched everything. It broke four relationships that we have. We have a relationship with ourselves, our relationship with creation. Now we, have, uh, we don't treat God's creation the way it should, and we destroy ourselves as a society. Our, our relationship with God is, is distorted. And our relationship with neighbors distorted. These four relationships where there was once shalom, Cornelius Plantinga called it the vandalism of shalom, um, that we've since of, of, of vandalized shalom. And God's goal in salvation, week one, is to restore us back to our original goodness. That's what, that's what salvation is, is us being restored back to the garden. That uh, Ecclesiastes says that in the heart of every person is this ache to get back to the garden. There's this ache in the human heart. Um, To get back to home, and so um, the dance as a Christian, God created this world with an intention, that big picture, and God's going to restore it. And now we live in the messy middle, trying to be peacemakers. We are peacemakers. He says, "Blessed are the peacemakers. You are children of God." So it's this identity statement: you are a peacemaker. Now I'm not saying that we're good ones, but your identity is you're a peacemaker. You might be a bad peacemaker or a good peacemaker. But that's who you are once you follow Jesus. That is your identity, is to be a peacemaker. Um, and he doesn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. That's a nice idea. There's a difference. Peacemaker doesn't constitute this sense of passivity. It's active. It's, a, it's an active approach. And um, peacemaking is this. There's two things that come to mind. Basically, I think the way I think about peacemaking is this tension between this. And I hope this is helpful. There's no idea above critique, and there's no person below dignity. Okay, so there's no idea that's ever ever um, uh, above critique, and there's no person below dignity. So when, if you can live into those tensions as you're engaging in conflict, those two things are going to root you and guide you as you treat Others as your equal, as you begin to treat others with different ideas or views to you, that you can separate the sense of like right, wrong, and you can begin to celebrate difference and speak to difference, and yet also critique ideas that you believe are harmful for the world. Um, so, for example, as radical as that sounds, I would say no terrorist is is beyond redemption. No terrorist is beyond and you're like, okay, that sounds a little look at Paul. Paul was in the Bible persecuting Christians, saying, like, could you hold my jacket so I can throw stones harder at the Christians? That's, like, literally in the passage. He, he, so so no, Paul becomes the greatest missionary in the New Testament that, that, that we know of. Um, either he was just a great narcissist who thought a lot of himself, and there's others, or just he was the greatest. Who knows? I'm just kidding. Uh, so, uh, but, but that, that's him. So he, he, here he is in... in, in um, there's no thought above critique or tension, right? And so I love this quote by Andrew R. It says People are not problems to solve, people are not objects to fear, they are mysteries to be honored. Let that soak in for a minute. People are not problems to solve, they're not objects to fear. They are mysteries to be honored. If we have that mindset in the midst of our conflict and we show up with Jesus's presence as peacemakers, we show up to be curious about the mystery of this other divine person, no matter how much they've hurt us. Now, caveat, peacemaking doesn't mean um, being a doormat. It doesn't mean taking abuse. It doesn't mean um, you know, get it, taking more and more on. So let me, let me get into that with this passage um, with uh, Matthew 5. Jesus tells the story back to the passage that we hit on the beginning, and I, you've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek also. And um, so let me, let me explain that. Does um, is is anybody want to volunteer for this? It might be easier to show. <laughs> anybody, any volunteers here in the room? You can slap me if you want. Christian, come on up. Come on, Christian. Christian's like, I'll take it. Guys, Christian Marquez, everybody. Give it up. Please, WWE please, please wrestler. It up. Um, no, it's good. Okay, so this passage says that if anyone... So we're Roman centurions. We, don't, we got in a fight. We're about to, we're about to go at it, okay? Um, but it says... So if we were to fight, in that time... Everyone was right-handed. I don't know if you ever heard that. Like, left-handeders were just kind of considered weird back then. Um, left-handed in most cultures and third countries is considered your dirty hand. Like, when I was in West Africa, this is your dirty hand. You don't use your left hand. Um, your right hand usually dominant with right hand. So, it says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So, if we're fighting, why don't you punch me with your right hand? Okay. Okay, now, if you've punched me with the right hand and we're in a fight, how are you going to now hit me after you hit me with the right hand on my right cheek with only the right hand? With only the right hand. How are you going to do that? That's right. Backhand me. So, this backhand was culturally a sign of, of superiority. It was an insult of, I am, I am, you're, I'm not, we're not, this is, we're equals. This is, I'm your master. So this is a sign. If someone comes to you and comes in a fight and says, "I'm your master," and when you when they hit you on on the right, well, they have been this way, right cheek, give them the other cheek also. Now what this is not saying is is um, be a doormat. That's not what it's saying. This is saying if you're going to hit me, you have to hit me as your equal. So if we're in a fight, you will not treat me as inferior. If you're going to hit me. Hit me with your right hand on this left cheek as an equal. Okay, thanks, man. Give it up Thank for Christian. Um, so uh, this, this sense of, and now this isn't, this is this is what the root of this passage is where um, the innovation of Gandhi came about. who was then later taken on by Martin Luther King Jr. This is the roots of that nonviolent, resistant, a mode of civil rights that has changed the landscape of America. And this is what's so important to our church, is this African-American spiritual tradition that's so important to our church that gets so much of this right that a lot of the rest of the church gets wrong, is this sense of, of this is not, um, not cowardism. This, this is a sense of, of sh- this act would have shamed the oppressor publicly. Okay, so this act would have shamed the oppressor publicly to go, wow. So let me, let me explain. Keep going. So um, and if anyone wants to—go back to that last slide. I think there might be—if anyone wants to take, sue you and take your shirt and hand, hand over your coat as well. So if you're, if you're in the time and you're like, someone wants some of your clothes, he says just give them everything, strip down naked, and shame them publicly. And you see what it is? It's like the subversive prophetic act of nonviolent resistance. I want you to, um, the, the creditor, if the creditor comes to you and says, you owe me money, you don't have any money, give me all of your clothes, you would give them also your tunic and everything so that they'd be like, no, 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 don't do that, that's too far, right? So they've been shaming them publicly in front of everyone for being someone who is demanding that. Next slide, next uh, passage, he says, um, no, go back one more. Next verse, I mean. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. There, there was a law at the time that if you were a Roman centurion, you could ask anybody to take your military gear and carry it for up to one mile. You couldn't go over one mile. Remember Simon the Cyrene, who was made to carry Jesus' cross, was just grabbed randomly from the crowd because he looked like a racial other? He, 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 and, and so this is that. But he's saying, hey, if, you are, if you, it happens to you, go ahead, if they carried it two miles, the Roman centurions would have faced a small fee of some sort. So he says, go ahead and just keep carrying it. Again, getting to the place you're going you're put to put the accountability back on them for their actions. Um, and so, so there's this sense of, of yeah, you can go to the next slide. The sense of, like, of, of prophetic uh, creative resistance that, that he's getting at, that, that we should follow as Christians. Um, so this reminds me of a story of um, when I took a sabbatical. I, I'm from the South, and so I, 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 did a, I like to do a lot of research about how like, different pastors responded to lynchings and racial racial segregation um, in the South specifically, both white and black. I kind of went a little deep dive. And there's this one story that stands out particularly. Um, There's a white pastor named Henry Lyons, the pastor First Baptist Church of Montgomery. And he had a radio show in which he, he, this is a pastor who preached at Hank Williams Sr.'s funeral. So if that gives you some context, okay? So this pastor had a radio show and he would, you know, do a message on the radio and, um, On this radio show, he began to be adamantly talk about the need for segregation and to stop any attempts of integration. Okay, And so the same night, First Baptist Church of Ridley began to host all the freedom riders that were fighting for justice and to ride the bus for freedom and to take care of those freedom riders being abused. That preaching of Henry Lyons on the radio show, combined with the KKK and with probably other Christians, white Christians resulted in 2,000 people mob standing outside of the church doors of First Baptist really, as the African-American church gathered Freedom Riders to support them and have a worship service and pray for them and began to throw Molotov cocktails into the church to attempt to burn the church down. Now, we've had several church Fires, burnings throughout history. Never once have we had one in history in which one terrorist group tried to kill and bomb and set fire a church while people are in the church. Okay, so this is what's happening. Um, Dr. King is there. Um, Dr. Abernathy, another leader, they call JFK. They get him on the phone. There's also, there's also news of, of of black taxi drivers trying to create a counteract of violence. Martin Luther King somehow gets out of there and, and tells them no and somehow gets back in the church. I don't know how. I guess he's like, he's not, I don't know how he does that. Um, it's okay, I guess. And there's this moment where All of this chaos is happening. All of this violence. And Dr. Abernathy has the whole church sing a song. And the song they sing is love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help. Love lifted me. That's the picture of what fulfills this. Is this spark that Jesus created that went on to get carried on by Christians for generations to come. Like Dr. King. Like Dr. Abernathy. And as peacemakers... um, this is an area that, that it would be good to just take a pause and, and, and talk about the need of peacemaking among this area of race. It's an area that's grown quiet since George Floyd, I feel like, an easy, easy out of sight, out of mind. And I think that it's very important to us to continue to not... Um, have our eyes closed to this conversation and not believe that the lie of racial difference, as Brian Stevenson talks about it, the lie of racial difference, Brian Stevenson says, the lie that one race is superior to another race, is so ingrained in our society, so built into us, right? This so um, entrenched in us, and the dilemma. Now, there's like a couple different kinds of white people. I'm going to talk to the white people in the room. There's a couple different kinds of white people. There's the like, white people who are like, I'm in denial, it's not true, that's ridiculous, I don't want to talk about that. Then there's the white people who are like, I saw, read a lot, learned a lot. I'm now woke and kind of mess up the word woke, right? Like woke was a word created by African-Americans in the 72 playwright to talk about what it meant to the, now it's kind of gotten white people just always ruin good ideas. Um, but <laughs> um, so now, now there's this sense of, of like, I've arrived, you should too attitude by white, white people at times. That's like, I was once here, now I'm here. Now you better get over here. And there's this rigidity of how you need to show up. Um, And so now there's this sense of this 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 superiority complex, right? Like as if you've. My point here is that we have to remove the sense that you've arrived. There is no arrival in this conversation of of racism. There is never. It is an ongoing effect of always learning, always growing in how. Um, we've been impacted. And what are the ways this lie has impacted me? What do I need to be healed from? And so I think, I think this is very important because um, this dilemma that we face is is huge in our city. We see, you know, the, the racial dot map of Chicago. You just look it up, you see the, the way, you know, racial uh, redlining has impacted us. Um, one, one good example I think is, is, a, is a neat thing going on is just um, a creative example is this uh, woman named Tonika Johnson from Inglewood. She created this folded map experiment. Um, so I'll just kind of give you some, some neat uh, story here of a, of a segregation disruptor um, in this conversation. So she decided to take an experiment of helping people that live on the same street on north and south meet? If you were to fold the map of Chicago, where would they meet? So here's a couple of examples. Um, this is two, our lighting's a little bad, but these are two neighbors that have met um, to Chicago residents. Next slide. Here's 6330 North Polina. Could be your house, I don't know. <laughs> and 6329 South Polina. You see this two-flat boarded up. Next slide. Here's 6720 South Ashland, on the left, actually. And then 6720 North Ashland on the I'm sorry, on the left. Yeah, they flip flop the the lines there. Um, next, is there another slide? Or is that it? That's it. But I want you to see the difference. You see the disparities between those houses, right? You see the disparities between those addresses. If you fold the map of Chicago, you see the impact of systemic injustice, right? So you, we know this. We know this. So wh- so so what do we do? What do we do with this? How do we how do we do this? Well, one, I would say, thirdly, of peacemaking is we can't do peacemaking without the peacemaker. Um, We look to Jesus, who shows us what it's like to be human, to be God, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but lowered himself to take on a humble approach and made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being obedient to death, and even death on the cross. And therefore Christ gave him the name above all names, the name of Jesus, that every knee will bow and tongue confess. So we must have this kind of new consciousness um, I think it's hard to think of examples that so success of this, but the only clear example that I can think of is Desmond Tutu and the, the areas of the Truth and Reconciliation Project in South Africa. So are you guys hanging in there with me? I know this is a lot different. But that project is the best example because what happened there is the oppressor and the oppressed had to learn, now catch this, the good of the other, the good of the oppressor, and the good of the oppressed is not separable from the good of me. I'm going to let that sink in. The good of the other, whether think about your differences right now. Your, your enemy love that you're struggling with like this is a, a neighbor, a family member. It might be a, a, a Democrat, Republican thing. It could be a race thing. It could be an employer. The good of the other in that circumstance is not separable from the good of me. Now, I know that that's might not make sense to, to, to the legal law over here, but, but there's, a sense of like, there's a sense of this in our relationships, right? The hurt of the other is not separable from the pain of me. And so we are connected. And the issue of healing in this is most people, and if you're in this conversation and you're white, it's like, I don't want to hear about this. I don't want to deal with the shame of this, right? And if you're a person of color in this room, you're like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with the pain of this, right? And so one group is trying to avoid the shame. The other group's trying to avoid the pain. But in this Truth and Reconciliation Project, they basically said, if you were, a part of, you were an oppressor, if you come tell the truth in this court case, in this court system, you will, no, you will be set free. There will be no repercussions. So you come and speak the truth of the injustices that were happening, and you will be set free and not be held accountable because we need the truth. And um, there's, there's, there's other great examples of this. But I want to, you know, I've said a lot. I know I've said a lot. I want to try to figure out how to close this plane here for a moment. I want to close the plane this way, that I think in these three things, um, that this, this, this peace-making ma- that happens is, is an active approach. It's, it's something that we act on. It's not just, some, not just in our head. I heard a story of a life-sentence prisoner who became a believer, and he said I, he became a believer six months prior to uh, he He became a believer in jail, and he was released from prison, and he said, I didn't, I didn't know for sure I was a believer until six months out of jail. And he says, I got jumped, and when they jumped me, I was in this position to kill the other person, and when I was able to uh, think for a moment and pray, the Holy Spirit restrained me from killing this other person, and that's when I knew I was saved. That's when I know that I was a Christian. Um, so when, when you get to, to bring the punch, right, when you're there, to, there's a sense of a course of action change that where Jesus' heart changes you, and this is hard stuff. So... Um, there's a lot of different areas I hit on, but I want, to, I want you to think about a few. Where do you have agency of power in your life right now? And where do you have agency to use your power to serve rather than your power to, to lord over? And then secondly, how can you begin to be a segregation disruptor? Where are you um, showing up in spaces and looking for friendship with people different from you? What if, what if you did this? What if, what if you were in the majority... And when you are in social settings, you prioritize the minority in the room for a moment. You see what happens. It's like instead of going to those that look like you, what if you went to those that were different from you? I've done this at at my school, old school system. We actually could never break into some of the the, the in crowd because, you know, it's like there's a certain economic level and all that. I began to say, you know, I'm just going to befriend everybody that looks different from me. And it was like, man everyone wants to talk to me. <laughs> like, this is great. So I, what would it be like? What would it be like to, to, to do an experiment and say, you know what, for a month, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prioritize those who are different from me whenever I'm in social settings. Um, uh, I don't know what this looks like for you, but I think what this looks like for all of us is, is a moment of confession as we pray. So I'm going to have Damon come. And I think, um, let's just pray. And God, I, I thank you for this time. And I do want us just to kind of, I think the answer of all of this is Psalms 139 that says, Search me, O God. Search me and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, God. So let's pray that together. Search me. Know my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. Is there anything offensive, an offensive way inside of me? Lead me in the way of everlasting. God wants all of us. He doesn't want you to have just a vertical relationship and fortitude. He wants you to have a horizontal fortitude with those around you with our city. God, would you show us what is not pleasing to you? Would you give us grace to acknowledge this? Maybe as you're praying this, there's someone coming to mind that's just creating anger or bitterness or a conflict Uh, I just want to invite you to a, a spirit of forgiveness. Remember, forgiveness doesn't have to result in reconciliation. But Jesus would often say, when you come to worship, just leave your gift and go be reconciled first. Forgive someone. And maybe today your imagination has been captured by a different storyline as we talked about at the beginning. Maybe your storyline is comfort or power or image or ambition. If your imagination has been captured treasuring something other than Jesus, would you treasure a vision of your heart taking hold of the kingdom of God today since a new purpose in him? God, may all of our life lead to healing, healing wounds in our relationships, healing wrongs. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.